Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone, this is your host Paul, and this is Mysteries Abound, episode 23. This week we're going to be looking at half a dozen stories. The first couple are about skinwalkers. Then from the futility closet, some more oddities. And from the mysteriouspeople.com, Sarah Wilson, the Princess Susanna Hoax. And from the fortyandtimes.com comes the story of the Dietlov Pass incident, and finally, from the unmuseum.org, the statue of Zeus at Olympia. Our first two stories today are all to do with the skinwalker. And to start off, what is a skinwalker for those who don't know, like me? And this comes from the www.wisegeek.com website. A skinwalker is a legendary creature in certain Native American cultures that is somewhat analogous to the European werewolf. Like the werewolf, the skinwalker is a shapeshifter, human at times and at other times taking on the aspect of an animal, usually at night. In its animal form, a skinwalker may be virtually anything, including a wolf, coyote, fox, bear, owl or crow. All those skinwalkers may have a favourite form that they customarily use. They have the power to become anything they wish. While the skinwalker is known mainly from Navajo folklore, analogies exist in the mythologies of other tribes, including the Mohawk, Hopi and Aztecs. In the Navajo tradition, the skinwalker is a human who has gained his or her powers through witchcraft. Skinwalkers are frightening, dangerous and difficult to kill. Witches earn their power through violating a taboo and generally use it to harm others, so they are considered a sort of a monster. In animal form, a skinwalker is very fast and impossible to catch. 
skinwalkers sometimes transform themselves into animals simply for the purpose of traversing great distances quickly. They may also transform in order to wreak havoc on others, as their identity will be hidden and they will be able to escape quickly if necessary. Both humans and animals can easily tell a skinwalker from a real animal, as the skinwalker is unable to move completely naturally in animal form. A skinwalker typically wears the pelt of the animal he or she will transform into, usually with no other clothing. Because of their association with skinwalkers, wild animal hides are taboo in Navajo culture and rarely seen. A skinwalker can only be defeated if one can discover his or her identity. This is possible if the skinwalker is tracked back to his or her home, or in some stories, if a skinwalker is wounded and the same injury is later noted on a human. While it is virtually impossible to kill a skinwalker in human form, there are magical ways to protect oneself and even kill a skinwalker. Traditional faith healers can perform ceremonies to protect one from the danger of skinwalkers, or a person going out at night can cover his or her body with corn pollen, cedar ash or juniper berries. If a person discovers the human identity of a skinwalker, he or she can kill the witch by saying, the person's name, you are a skinwalker. And now from the ParanormalAbout.com website, from the Your True Tales section, a story by Jody Joe, and it's entitled The Long-Haired Skinwalker. I'm a Navajo from Window Rock, Arizona. This weird event happened in New Mexico in the summer of 2002. It was pitch black during the night. I was pretty young, and one night I fell asleep with my blinds wide open. I started to have this weird nightmare of my family dying in front of me. I could feel my breathing getting rapid in my sleep, but I awoke to the sound of my dog barking. It only barked for a brief time. Then I heard my dog whining, its cry getting further and further as if it were running away. I had this strange feeling of something or someone watching me, a feeling we can all relate to. As I turned to look, I saw the figure's reflection on my mirror which stood in front of me. Standing there by my window watching me sleep, I could see it breathing heavily. It was a tall man with long straight hair, a person who resembled the old folks. I lay there trying to focus on this thing's face. I couldn't see the face, only the silhouette. I stared, petrified, trying to run away or make a sound. I watched it for about two minutes, which seemed like ten minutes. But when I finally got the courage to turn away, I could hear its footsteps making its way to the fence we had. I waited a couple of minutes to open my eyes again. I got up and walked past our back door, which was just down the hall. When I walked past it trying not to look out, which I did, I saw this thing or 
person in the distance, standing next to a big tree about 50 feet from the house, as if it knew I would look out. I saw its bright eyes, like a dog's. I ran to tell my mother what I just saw. She urged me to lie down and go to sleep. I slept little that night. When I told the people of this event, they told me it was a skinwalker in the area. People told me of their own little encounters of skinwalkers in the area. I was told by this elderly lady that it was a man that lived in a remote area. And from the Guardian Tales.freewebspace.com comes a tale about New Mexico skinwalkers. I know what I saw. Around late January of 2000, my father and I were working at a high school in Throw, New Mexico, which is somewhere between Gallup and Grants. We were going to have to be there for a few weeks, so we took my dad's trailer, which had all the accommodations of home. We would park at Blue Water Lake and camp out there at night and work in the town during the day because it was cheaper than a motel and we both loved to fish. One night after work, I was sitting in a folding chair near the fire and hoping to catch some trout, and my father was inside the camper. As I sat there I heard something to the effect of a dog trotting close by, but it didn't bother me because there were a lot of homeless dogs and some coyote and wolves in that area. What bothered me was that the trotting stopped, yet I still couldn't see anything from the light of our fire. It was very dark out. I had a flashlight next to me, so I picked it up and started to scan the grounds nearby as I sat in the chair. It only took seconds before I spotted something in the light beam. There it was, about 35 feet away from me. It was sitting on its hind legs, with its back to me. But as soon as I hit it with the flashlight beam, it slowly turned its head and looked over its right shoulder directly at me. It looked a lot like a wolf, but very mangy and large for the most part. Here's the part that scared me. He opened his mouth very wide, much wider than I had ever seen any dog or wolf open its mouth. Saliva was dripping from his bottom jaw and his eyes were kind of glowing red. I unclasped the holster for my 38 automatic firearm as I kept spotting him with the flashlight. I was sure I was in trouble. I could just tell he was very disturbed at me. What's funny is that the whole time I had him spotted in the light beam, he didn't make a sound at all. No hiss, no growl, nothing. But I could see his breath because it was very cold outside. It seemed as though he was panting rather hard, as if he had been running, but he was sitting when I spotted him. I found it hard to believe how far he turned his head around to look at me. It really didn't seem normal. And also the fact that his mouth was open wider than I had ever seen any dog or wolf open its mouth. I guess the fact that it kept its distance and had its back to me kept me from shooting him or it. I knew that this was without a doubt nothing normal in this life. I have heard several stories about skinwalkers from Navajo people in the Gallup area and my friend Adam swears to everything sacred that he had one running alongside his truck at 50 miles per hour in Puerto Rico one night a couple of years before my encounter at Blue Water Lake. I sat in my chair 
with fear that I might not be able to kill this thing because it may be immortal or something. I was ready to pull the gun and fire, if it even made a move toward me, but I sure wasn't going to get up and run to the trailer and show weakness to this thing and leave myself in deep trouble. We stared at each other for what seemed like a total of about 45 seconds before it slowly turned its head back away from me and ran off slowly back into the darkness. In closing, I'll say this. I am now 35 years old and I have studied metaphysics extensively for years. I have seen both spirits and demons in my life. I have very good clairvoyance and this creature, which I truly believe to be a skinwalker, seemed to be telling me that it didn't want me there and that it could take my life with ease. I honestly believe that the only thing that saved my life that cold night was the spirits that worked closely with me at all times. I won't lie though, I have never ever seen anything that scary in my entire life. And that story was written by Earl L. And just a little feedback from our listeners. I found these two comments on the Podcast Alley site. This one's from Stephen.Trash. Always enjoy listening to the show. May it long continue. And from GMarshall47. Downloaded all 22 episodes. Brilliant. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Jeff from Hartpool in England. And the following email came from Peter who lives in Toronto in Canada. Hello, Paul. Thank you very much. You have entertained me frequently. I've enjoyed most episodes of all of your three shows and moments ago I wrote favourable reviews on two of your shows on the Canadian iTunes. I've listened to you evolve in your confidence and how you've integrated music and ambient sound. I love hearing the birds and your wife off mic. Have you considered the Fortean Times as a source of unusual articles of interest? If you are considering starting a new theme, I'd recommend... I'd like to hear stories in a pub. While your music would come from usual sources, I'd like the background sound to be like you are talking to friends at the bar in a quiet local pub. I'd suggest stories, urban legends, pub legends and hauntings, great drinkers in history, stories illustrating the commonalities between alien and leprechaun abduction, incredible lengths taken to make a potent homebrew under less than favourable circumstances, why animals can't legally buy alcohol, drunk animal stories, and the occasional drunk redneck story that usually involves someone shouting, hey guys, watch this. I don't ever want to pay, but I might. I'd happily enjoy product placement level commercials. My name is Peter, but I prefer to be known by strangers as my alias, Twerve Felsfar. Keep well, drop me a line if you are on my continent for a pint. 
Well, Peter, thanks for the great email. I had a little chuckle while I was reading it, and I may consider some of those pub legends and things for a story if I find some. And if I ever visit Canada, I'll be sure to give you a tingle and uh, come and have a pint. I don't mind a beer myself. And now from the www.mysteriouspeople.com, the story of Sarah Wilson, the Princess Susanna Hoax. Sarah Wilson was born in a Staffordshire village in 1754, the daughter of a bailiff. She left for London when she was just 16, and after only a few weeks in the city, had the fortune to be employed as a maid to Miss Caroline Vernon a lady-in-waiting to Queen Charlotte. Miss Vernon seems to have admired her intelligence and conscientiousness. At the Queen's house, where Buckingham Palace now stands, she saw Queen Charlotte, wife of King George III, frequently, and learned much about private royal affairs and life at court. But soon this quick-witted girl began to grow envious of all the wealth and the finery surrounding her. One day, when alone in the Queen's closet, she broke open the cabinet and stole some jewellery, a miniature portrait of the Queen and one of the Queen's dresses. Perhaps she thought such relatively minor theft would go undetected. But the Queen was in the habit of counting her most valuable pieces and noticed some were missing. She had the closet watched to find the culprit. A few days later, Sarah again went to steal from the same place, but this time she was caught in the act. She was charged with theft and violation of the royal privacy and sentenced to death. But after Caroline Vernon's pleas to the Queen on Sarah's behalf, the punishment was commuted to transportation and in July 1771, at the age of 17, Sarah was taken by prison ship to Baltimore, Maryland. On arrival in America, she was sold to a Mr. W. Duval of Bush Creek, Frederick County, but she escaped to Virginia almost immediately. Somehow, she still had amongst her personal belongings some of the stolen items from the Queen, including a ring, a dress and the miniature portrait. Now the imposture began to take shape. She transformed herself into Princess Susanna Caroline Matilda, sister of Queen Charlotte, forced into exile in America following a scandal and a family quarrel. With her intimate familiarity with court life and her knowledge of the gossip of upper-class English society, Princess Susanna was soon in demand at various gentlemen's houses. She particularly impressed those of the older generation of settlers, who were emigrants from England themselves, as they listened fascinated to her stories of the old country. She had other motives, as people not unreasonably assumed the princess would soon be restored to favour back in England. So in return for favours to be granted when she regained her rightful position, she was often given money and gifts. The imposture was proving a success, although some were suspicious about her refusal to speak German despite being born in the country, and her perfect grasp of the English language. 
There were also those who wondered why they had never heard of a younger sister of the Queen before. Meanwhile, Sarah's former owner, Mr Deval, who'd paid a considerable sum for her, had been trying hard to find his escaped slave, and eventually came to hear about this travelling princess. He knew from the description that it was Sarah Wilson. So in the autumn of 1773, he circulated an advertisement, saying that the supposed princess was in fact his escaped servant girl, and that whoever caught her would receive five pistols and all expenses as a reward. He also sent one of his employees, Michael Dalton, to find her. Dalton tracked her down to a plantation in Charlestown, but she had left before he arrived. He eventually found her on a neighbouring plantation and brought her back to slavery in Bush Creek at gunpoint. This seemed to be the end of the story, and for a while Sarah worked without incident for Duval. But after two years, she found the opportunity she'd been waiting for to plan her escape. Another slave girl named Sarah Wilson had recently arrived in Maryland, and she utilised this coincidence and a further piece of good luck, Duval's departure to fight in the militia in the American War of Independence, to the full. Somehow she was able to exchange the new Sarah Wilson for herself and escaped northward out of slavery once and for all. This time Duval gave up the chase. She later married William Talbot, a young officer in the Light Dragoons. After the war, the couple stayed in America, possibly because she would have been arrested again if she returned to England. Sarah used the money from her role as Princess Susanna to set her husband up in business. Her wandering days over, they subsequently had a large family and lived in the then respectable area of the Bowery, New York. And from the www.futilitycloset.com, a few oddities. Tickets, please. At the Kishi Railway Station in southern Japan, the station master has her own litter box. Tama, a local stray cat, was named to the post in January 2007, and ridership immediately jumped 17%. She is paid in cat food and gets her own hat, As the station is unmanned, her main job is to greet passengers. This all sounds remarkably progressive, but Tama may have mixed feelings. She's still the only female manager in the company. And the following is a short quotation written by Pierce Egan in Sporting Anecdotes, original and selected, from 1822. An Extraordinary Shot A clergyman in the eastern part of Sussex, a few years since, at a single discharge of his gun, killed a partridge, shot a man, 
a hog and a hog sty, broke 14 panes of glass and knocked down six gingerbread kings and queens that were standing on the mantelpiece opposite the window. The above may be depended upon as fact, not exaggerated, but given literally as it happened. And this one was placed here by Greg Ross, and it's entitled The Handicapper. In the 1740s, workers at a stable near Cambridge noticed that a cat had taken a peculiar fancy to one of the horses there. She was always near him, they found, sitting on his back or nestling nearby in the manger. Her attachment proved so great that when the stallion died in 1754, she sat upon him after he was dead in the building erected for him and followed him to the place where he was buried under a gateway near the running stable sat upon him there till he was buried, then went away and never was seen again, till found dead in the hayloft, apparently of grief. The cat's name is not recorded, but she certainly could pick horses. The stallion was the Godolphin Arabian, now revered as the founder of modern thoroughbred racing stock. His direct descendants include both Seabiscuit and Man of War. A long wait. In 1912, workmen digging a tunnel for New York's new subway discovered a carpeted room with oil paintings, a fountain and a grand piano. It was the waiting room for an early prototype subway built in 1870. A block-long tunnel in which a single car was pushed by a giant fan. Funding had failed and the project had been forgotten. And finally, the Jerusalem Syndrome. Between 1980 and 1993, 42 visitors to Israel experienced a peculiar psychotic episode with seven consistent clinical stages. Number one, anxiety, agitation, nervousness and tension, plus other unspecified reactions. Number two, Declaration of the desire to split away from the group or the family and to tour Jerusalem alone. Number three. A need to be clean and pure. Obsession with taking baths and showers. Compulsive fingernail and toenail cutting. Number four. Preparation, often with the aid of hotel bed linen, of a long ankle-length toga-like gown which was always white. Number five, the need to scream, shout or sing out loud psalms, verses from the Bible, religious hymns or spirituals. Number six, a procession or march to one of Jerusalem's holy places. And finally, number seven, delivery of a sermon in a holy place. The sermon was usually very confused and based on an unrealistic plea to humankind to adopt a more wholesome, moral, simple way of life. These people had no history of psychiatric illnesses and arrived as regular tourists with no special mission in mind. They recovered fairly spontaneously on leaving the country and were reluctant afterward to discuss the episode. No explanation has been found. 
and apparently that article came from the British Journal of Psychiatry, an article entitled The Jerusalem Syndrome, page 176 and 86 to 90, just in case you wanted to look it up. Much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network. And coming up from the www.unmuseum.org, the statue of Zeus at Olympia. In ancient times, the Greeks held one of the most important festivals, the Olympic Games, in honour of the king of their gods, Zeus. Like our modern Olympics, athletes travelled from distant lands, including Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt and Sicily, to compete in the Games. The Olympics were first started in 776 BC and held at a shrine to Zeus located on the western coast of Greece in a region called Peloponnesus. The Games, held every four years, helped to unify the Greek city-states. Sacred truce was declared during the Games and wars were stopped. Safe passage was given to all travelling to the site called Olympia for the season of the Games. The site consisted of a stadium for the Games and a sacred grove or altus where temples were located. The shrine to Zeus was simple in the early years, but as time went by and the games increased in importance, it became obvious that a new, larger temple, one worthy of the King of Gods, was needed. Between 470 and 460 BC, construction on a new temple was started. The designer was Liban of Elis, and his masterpiece, the Temple of Zeus, was completed in 456 BC. This temple followed a design used on many large Grecian temples. It was similar to the Parthenon in Athens and the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. The temple was built on a raised rectangular platform. Thirteen large columns supported the roof along the sides and six supported it on each end. A gently peaked roof topped the building. The triangles or pediments created by the sloped roof at the end of the building were filled with sculpture. Under the pediments just above the columns was more sculpture depicting the twelve labours of Heracles, six on each end. Though the temple was considered one of the best examples of the Doric design because of its style and quality of the workmanship, it was decided the temple alone was too simple to be worthy of the King of Gods. To remedy this, a statue was commissioned for the interior, a magnificent statue of Zeus that would become one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. <laughs> ¶¶ 
The sculptor chosen for this great task was a man named Phidias. He had already rendered a 40-foot high statue of the goddess Athena for the Parthenon in Athens and had also done much of the sculpture on the exterior of that temple. After his work in Athens was done, Phidias travelled to Olympia to start on what he considered his best work, the statue of Zeus. On arriving, he set up a workshop to the west of the temple. According to accounts, the statue was located at the western end of the temple. It was 22 feet wide and some 40 feet tall. The figure of Zeus was seated on an elaborate throne. His head nearly grazed the roof. The historian Strabo wrote, Although the temple itself is very large, the sculptor is criticised for not having appreciated the correct proportions. He has depicted Zeus seated, but with his head almost touching the ceiling, so that we have the impression that if Zeus moved to stand up, he would unroof the temple. Others who viewed the temple disagreed with Strabo and found the proportions very effective in conveying the god's size and power. By filling nearly all the available space, the statue was made to seem even larger than it really was. In its right hand, the statue held a figure of Nike, the goddess of victory, and in its left was a scepter, inlaid with every kind of metal, which was topped with an eagle. Perhaps even more impressive than the statue itself was the throne made out of gold, ebony, ivory and inlaid with precious stones. Carved into the chair were the figures of Greek gods and mystical animals like the Sphinx. The figure's skin was composed of ivory and the beard and hair and robe were made of gold. Construction was by the use of gold and ivory plates attached to a wooden frame. Because the weather in Olympia was so damp, the statue required care so that the humidity would not crack the ivory. For this purpose, it was constantly treated with oil kept in a special pool in the floor of the temple. It is said that for centuries, the descendants of Phidias held a responsibility for this maintenance of the statue. Besides the statue, there was little inside the temple. The Greeks preferred the interior of their shrines to be simple. The feeling it gave was probably very much like the Lincoln Memorial or Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., with their lofty marble columns and single large statues. Copies of the statue were made, but none survive, though pictures found on coins give researchers clues about its appearance. Despite his magnificent work at Olympia, Phidias ran into trouble when he returned home. He was a close friend with Pericles, who ruled Athens. Enemies of Pericles, unable to strike at the ruler directly, attacked his friends instead. Phidias was accused of stealing gold meant for the statue of Athena. When that charge failed to stick, they claimed he had carved his image and that of Pericles into the sculpture found on the Parthenon. This would have been improper in the Greeks' eyes, and Phidias was thrown into jail, where he died awaiting trial. His masterpiece lived on, though, at the temple in Olympia until 392 AD, when the Olympics were abolished by Emperor Theodosius I of Rome, a Christian who saw the games as a pagan rite. 
After that, the statue was moved by wealthy Greeks to the city of Constantinople, where it survived until destroyed by fire in 462 AD. The first archaeological work on the Olympia site was done by a group of French scientists in 1829. They were able to locate the outlines of the temple and found fragments of the sculpture showing the labours of Heracles. These pieces were shipped to Paris, where they are still on display today at the Louvre. The next expedition came from Germany in 1875 and worked at Olympia for five summers. Over that period, they were able to map out most of the buildings there, discovered more fragments of the temple's sculpture, and located the remains of the pool in the floor that contained the oil for the statue. In the 1950s, an excavation uncovered the workshop of Phidias, which was discovered beneath an early Christian church. Archaeologists found sculptors' tools, a pit for casting bronze, clay moulds, modelling plaster, and even a portion of one of the elephant's tusks, which had supplied the ivory for the statue. Many of the clay moulds, which had been used to shape the gold plates, bore serial numbers, which must have been used to show the place of the plates in the design. Today, the stadium at the site has been restored. Little is left of the temple, though, except a few columns. Of the statue, which was perhaps the most wonderful work at Olympia, all is now gone. And from the www.fortiantimes.com website, the Dietlov Pass incident, February 1959, Ural Mountains, Russia. Nine missing skiers found dead, cause unknown. The story sounds like something out of a low-budget horror movie. Nine young students go on a skiing holiday in Russia's Ural Mountains, but never return. Eventually their bodies are discovered, five of them frozen to death near their tent, four more bearing mysterious injuries, a smashed head, a missing tongue, buried in the snow some distance away. All, it seems, had fled in sudden terror from their camp in the middle of the night. Casting aside skis, food and warm clothes, they dashed headlong down a snowy slope toward a thick forest where they stood no chance of surviving bitter temperatures of around minus 30 degrees Celsius. At the time, seemingly baffled investigators offered the non-explanation that the group had died as a result of a compelling unknown force, and then simply closed the case and filed it as top secret. 
After half a century, the mystery remains. What was the nature of the deadly, unknown force? Were the Soviet authorities hiding something? And, if so, exactly what were they attempting to cover up? In the intervening years, a number of solutions have been put forward, involving everything from hostile tribes and abominable snowmen to aliens and secret military technology. If I had a chance to ask God just one question, it would be, what really happened to my friends that night, says Yuri Yudin, the tenth member of the fateful expedition and its only survivor. Yudin had become ill and turned back a few days into the trip. The fate of his friends remains a painful mystery, one which he has attempted to investigate himself. Yudin and his nine companions had set out on their journey on the 23rd of January 1955. Their destination, the Otorton Mountain in the northern Urals. He and eight of the others were students from the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Ekaterinburg, located in the Sverdlovsk region, 1,200 miles east of Moscow. Back then the city was still called Sverdlovsk and was best remembered as the place where the Tsar and his family were brutally murdered after the Russian Revolution. It was named after the Bolshevik party leader Yakov Sverdlovd, who himself had played a role in the killing. In 1959, the Soviet Union was in the middle of a thaw of sorts, after decades of Stalinist repression, and life under the new Premier, Nikita Khrushchev, was becoming somewhat freer. The 1950s saw, for one thing, an explosion of sport tourism in Russia as the country started to move away from the austerity of the immediate post-war years. A mixture of skiing, hiking and adventure sport tourism was more than simply a sporting activity in the Soviet Union. For the inhabitants of this closed and regimented society, it was a way of escaping the repressive strictures of everyday life, of returning to nature and of spending time with a circle of close friends away from the prying eyes of the state. Such activities were hugely popular with students who would set out on long trips to some of the wildest and remotest parts of the Soviet Union. The group from the Ural Polytechnic Institute was made up of experienced members of the college's sports tourism club, led by 23-year-old Igor Dietlov, respected for his expertise in cross-country skiing and mountaineering. Their route to a Torton, which would see them reaching heights of 1,100 metres above sea level, was classed as Category 3, the most dangerous for the time of the year, but the combined experience of the students meant that there was nothing unusual in their undertaking such an expedition. Aside from Dietlov and Newton, the group was made up of Georgi Krivonoshenko, 24, Yuri Doroshenko, 24, Zina Kolmogorova, 22, Rustam Slobodin, 23, Nicholas Thaibo Brigonellel, 24, Ludmila Dubanina, 21, Alexander Kolvatov, 25, and Alexander Zolotaryov, 37. All were students of the Institute except the much older Zolotaryov, whom some sources suggest was a slightly strange figure whom Dietlov was initially reluctant to take on the expedition. But Zolotaryov had proved himself a highly experienced sport tourist and came with a recommendation from some of Dietlov's friends. 
So, on January 23, the party of ten set off for what was meant to be a three-week cross-country trip. They travelled by train to Ivdel, arriving on the 25th of January, and then onwards by truck to Vizhai, the last inhabited settlement before the snow-covered wilderness between them and O'Torton. They began their trek on the 27th of January. On the 28th, however, Uden became ill and had to turn back, leaving the party of nine to go on without him. It was the last time he saw his companions alive. The course of events following Uden's departure can only be reconstructed from the diaries and photographs left by the rest of the group and retrieved from the area where they made their final camp. Having left Uden behind, the group skied on across uninhabited areas and frozen lakes, following the paths of the local indigenous tribe, the Mansai, for another four days. On the 31st of January, they reached the river Ospia, where they set up a base at the edge of the highland area, leaving equipment and food there for the return journey. From here, they began climbing the pass toward O'Torton on the 1st of February. For whatever reason, most likely bad weather conditions causing them to become lost, they found themselves on the slope of the mountain Colat Cycle at a height of just below 1,100 metres. Here, at around 5pm, they pitched their tent for the night, although by going just one and a half kilometres down the mountain, they could have again found shelter from the harsh elements in a forest. Their last diary entries show that the students were in good spirits. They even produced their own newspaper, The Evening O'Torton, a typically Soviet way of group bonding. The next day, they planned to continue onto the mountain, just 10 kilometres to the north, before returning to their base camp. The plan had been for the party to return to Vizhai by the 12th of February, from where Dietlov would send a telegram to the Institute's sports club saying that they had arrived safely. No one appeared concerned when the telegram failed to arrive as arranged. After all, these were experienced skiers. It was only on the 20th of February when worried relatives of the students raised the alarm that the Institute sent out a search and rescue team of teachers and students followed by the police and army who dispatched aeroplanes and helicopters. The volunteer rescuers found the abandoned camp on the 26th of February. We discovered that the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind, said Mikhail Sharavan, the student volunteer who found the tent. It had been cut open from the inside, with slashes big enough for a person to get through. Footprints were discovered in the metre-deep snow, left by people wearing socks, soft felt boots, or a single shoe, or who were completely barefoot. The footprints were matched to the members of the group, although there was some doubt as to whether they corresponded to eight or nine people. There was no evidence of a struggle or of other people beside the skiers and no sign of the students themselves. The prince led down the slope towards the forest but disappeared after 500 metres. One and a half kilometres from the tent, the first two bodies were discovered. Georgi Krivonyshenko and Yuri Doroshenko, barefoot and dressed in their underclothes, were found at the edge of the forest under a towering pine. Their hands were burned and the charred remains of a fire lay nearby.
The branches of the tree were broken up to five metres high, suggesting that a skier had climbed up to look for something, and other broken branches were scattered on the snow. A further 300 metres onwards lay the body of Dyatlov, on his back with his face looking in the direction of the camp and with one hand clutching a branch. A further 180 metres towards the tent, the searchers found Rustam Slobodin, and 150 metres on from him lay Zina Kolmogorova. Both looked as if they had been trying to crawl to the tent with their last remaining strength. Doctors said all five had died of hypothermia. Only Slobodin bore any injuries other than burnt hands. His skull was fractured, although this was not considered to be the cause of his death. It took two months to locate the remaining four skiers. Their bodies were found buried under four metres of snow in a forest ravine, 75 metres away from the pine tree. All four appeared to have suffered traumatic deaths. Thibaut Brignolelel's skull had been crushed, and Dubanina and Zolotarev had numerous broken ribs, Dubanina also had no tongue. The bodies, however, showed no external wounds. According to the writer Igor Sobolyov, who had investigated the deaths, it was also apparent that some of them had taken clothes from the bodies of those who had died first in an attempt to keep warm. Some of the garments had cuts in them, as if they had been forcibly removed. Zolotaryov was wearing Dubanina's fore coat and hat, while Dubanina's foot was wrapped in a piece of Krivonyshenko's woolen trousers. Thibaut Brigonel had two watches on his wrist, one showed 8.14am and the other 8.39am. Despite the many unanswered questions, the investigation was closed by the end of the month and the case files sent to a secret archive. Even more mysteriously, skiers and other adventurers were barred from the area for the next three years. I was 12 at that time, but I do remember the deep resonance that the accident had with the public, despite the authorities' efforts to keep relatives and investigators silent, says Yuri Kuncevich, head of the Dietlov Foundation, which today is trying to unravel the mystery. Over the years, many people have tried to understand just what happened on that night in February. Some, like Igor Sobolyov, have become fascinated by the young skier's tragic deaths. The Ural students, who have become tourist legends, bravely took part in an unequal battle on the slopes of the mountain with the unknown, he wrote, and they showed that they had the best human qualities in that battle. But what was the nature of this unknown with which they fought and lost? What made them run from their tent, and why were they trying to get back to it in the dark when they had made a fire elsewhere? How did the second group end up buried under four metres of snow? There are a number of theories. One of the first to be explored by the original investigators was that the students were killed by the local indigenous people, the Mansai, for trespassing on their holy land. There was a precedent for this, which might have been in the minds of the investigators. In the 1930s, Mansai shamans had reportedly drowned a female geologist who had climbed a mountain that the tribe considered forbidden. But in this case, although both mountains are mentioned in Mansai folklore, neither was considered a sacred or taboo site. The chilling coincidence that O'Tortand, the doomed party's destination, means don't go there in the Mansai language, 
while Kolat Sayakal means Mountain of the Dead, probably has more to do with practical warnings for wandering Mansai than any sort of tribal curse. Besides, the nearest Mansai village was 80 to 100 kilometres away. They generally enjoyed good relations with the Russians and didn't tend to go anywhere near the mountain in winter when the weather was unsuitable for deer herding or fishing. In the face of this lack of evidence, the Mansai theory was soon rejected. Other suggestions were that the group had simply stumbled upon a gang of criminals in the area or had been mistaken for escaped convicts by prison guards from a nearby prison camp. A claim was even made that sometime later prisoners in the camp were heard singing a song with words based on a poem by Dyatlov. The fact that Dyatlov is not known to have written poetry makes this unlikely, and the story seems to be a garbled version of the fact that during the students' overnight stay in Vishai, they had met a group of geologists from whom they had learned a number of forbidden songs, as Ludmila Dubinina recorded in her diary. Whether these were political songs written and sung in prisons, or just thief ballads, is unclear. In any case, all three of the theories based on human intervention founded on the fact that no other footprints were found in the area, around the tent, or near the bodies. Furthermore, Dr Boris Vozrozdany, who examined the bodies, said he believed no man could have inflicted the injuries because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. It was equal to the effect of a car crash, he said. But if human beings weren't responsible for the skiers' deaths, then what was? Those mysterious car crash-like injuries, according to Russian cryptozoologist Mikhail Tranktengertz, looked as if someone had hugged them, oh, so tightly. And a number of armchair theorists have suggested that what sent the group running in terror from their tent was the sight of a three-metre-tall monster looming out of the snows. Sightings of abominable snowmen and yeti-like creatures are common in Russia. After all, if such creatures do exist, then the country's vast snowfields offer plenty of places for them to hide from the eyes of man. Traktengetz had also stated that in their newspaper, The Evening O'Torton, the students had written in large letters, From now on, we know that the snowmen exist. Perhaps, though, we shouldn't read too much into this. It goes on to say, They can be met in the northern Urals, next to the O'Torton Mountain. Given the humorous tone of the newspaper, it is quite likely that the students were jokingly referring to themselves, rather than recording a genuine sighting of an almosty. Even less likely was the suggestion made in some quarters that the party had fallen foul of subterranean-dwelling Russian gnomes. It wasn't until the 1990s that the case files were declassified and reopened. What they contained only served to make the events of February 1959 still more mysterious. Medical tests had shown very high levels of radiation on the bodies, and clothes of four of the skiers, as if they had been handling radioactive materials or had been in a radioactive area. The original chief investigator, Lev Ivanov, described how he took a Geiger counter with him to the campsite on the mountain slope. As he approached, the device started to click rapidly and loudly. 
Ivanov also revealed that he had been ordered by senior regional officials to close the case and classify the findings as secret. The authorities had been worried by reports from many eyewitnesses, including the weather service and the military, that bright flying spheres had been spotted in the area in February and March 1959, with a notable concentration of accounts dating from the 17th of February. I suspected at the time, and am almost sure now, that these bright flying spheres had a direct connection to the group's death, Ivanov told Alinsky Put, a small Kazakh newspaper. The files contained testimony from another group of adventurers, geography students, who had been camping about 50 kilometres south of the skiers on the same night. The leader of the group said they had seen strange orange spheres or balls of fire floating in the night sky in the direction of Kolat Cycle on the night the students died. Another wrote that they saw a shining circular body fly over the village from the southwest to the northeast. The shining disc was practically the size of a full moon, a blue-white light surrounded by a blue halo. The halo brightly flashed like the flashes of distant lightning. When the body disappeared behind the horizon, the sky lit up in that place for a few more minutes. Ivanov speculated that one of the skiers might have left the tent during the night, seen a sphere, and woken the others up with his cries, urging them to run downhill towards the forest. Then the sphere might have exploded as they ran, killing the four who had serious injuries and cracking Slobodin's skull. I can't say what those balls were, some kind of arms or aliens or something else, but I am certain that they are directly connected to the deaths of those lads. Yuri Yudin also thinks an explosion killed his friends. The level of secrecy surrounding the incident suggests to him that the group might have inadvertently entered a secret military testing ground, a theory supported by the radiation on their clothes. Yuri Kuntsevich agrees, saying that another clue was an inexplicable suntan. I attended the funerals of the first five victims and remember that their faces looked like they had a deep brown tan, he said. Some accounts also suggest that relatives of the students had talked about the bodies having a strange orange tan and grey hair. The release documents contained no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. I know for sure that there were special boxes with their organs sent for examination, says Yudin. No traces of an explosion, however, have been found near the mountain. Two years before the students disappeared, the Soviet Union had sent the first satellite into space from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Two years after their deaths in 1961, Yuri Gagarin would fly from Baikonur to become the first man in space in 1961. Could the Russian space program have any bearing on the mystery? While it's true that a missile fired from Baikonur could have reached the northern Urals, there are no records of any launches at the time, said Alexander Zelnikov, a historian on Soviet missiles and senior official with the Korolyulov Rocket and Space Corporation, Energia. The Soviets' other main launch pad, Plesetsk, though closer to the Urals, only opened late in 1959. The surface-to-air missiles that could have been launched from the pads had not yet been built. However, 
Yuri Kuncevich says he led a group to the area in 2007 where they found a cemetery of scrap metal that suggested that the military had conducted experiments there at some time. We can't say what kind of military technology was tested, but the catastrophe of 1959 was man-made, he believes. Yuri Yudin's theory is that the military might have found the tent before the volunteer rescuers. He said he had been asked to identify the owner of every object found at the scene and had failed to find a match for a piece of cloth that looked like it had come from a soldier's coat, a pair of glasses, a pair of skis and a piece of a ski. Yudin had also seen documents that led him to believe that the criminal investigation had been opened on the 6th of February, 14 days before the search team found the tent. Other proponents of the military cover-up version of events go further and believe the hikers could have been deliberately killed after stumbling upon some kind of military secret. Whatever the military had been testing and perhaps it had gone disastrously wrong, they hadn't expected anyone to be in such a remote area in the middle of winter. When they discovered the group of sports tourists, their priority was to ensure secrecy by eliminating any surviving witnesses. But the tourists were already dead or dying. The explosion had killed three on the slope and two more by the fire. Four were still alive. But suffering from the radiation, as they slipped into unconsciousness, they were thrown into a pit, causing their injuries they were found later with. Snow was piled on top of their dying bodies. The conspiracy theorists admit it sounds like a fantastical explanation, but point to the case of Captain Eduard Ullman, a Russian army officer who served in Chechnya in 2002. Soldiers under his command shot at a van carrying six Chechnyans at a checkpoint, killing one. When he radioed into his command, he was told not to leave any witnesses. The rest were killed and their bodies burnt. Ullman was later charged and convicted. But once again, the lack of extra footprints in the area makes this narrative hard to accept. Moisey Axelrod, a friend of Dyatlov, is one of those who take a more sober approach to the mystery of the skiers' deaths. He believes that an avalanche hit their tent in the middle of the night, some of the students were injured as the snow hit the tent, and with it blocking the entrance, they had to cut their way out before heading for the woods and the base camp. Unfortunately, they went the wrong way. Having set up a fire, they took off their clothes to give to the injured. Eugenie Bayanov and Valentin Nekrasov, experienced sport tourists, also support this version of events, maintaining that the character of the group's injuries is consistent with the impact of a large amount of snow pressing them to the skis that were used as a tent floor, and that this explains why they showed no external bruises or scratches. Thibaut Brignol's skull was fractured in the impact, while Dubonina could have bitten off her own tongue. Skeptics of this theory point out that the skiers left the camp by foot and travelled more than a kilometre in minus 30 degrees snow. The Beau Brignol could have been unconscious due to his shattered skull, but his friends would have carried him. Investigators couldn't decide whether there were eight or nine pairs of footprints in the snow. Dubonina and Zolotarev could have walked with their broken ribs, though the nature of Dubonina's injuries, one of the broken ribs had penetrated her heart, causing hemorrhaging, would have left her with only about 10 to 20 minutes to live, meaning that she would have been dead 
by the time they approached the forest. So how could two of her male companions have frozen to death before she died? Once again, we are left with more questions than answers. The Legacy Since more details of the tragedy emerged in the 1990s, researchers have continued to search for answers. Local journalist Anatoly Gushkin was one of the first people to study the original files and maintains that a number of pages and an envelope mentioned in the case list were mysteriously missing. In 1999, he published a book called The Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives, setting out his theory concerning a military secret weapons test and a state cover-up. Lev Ivanov added weight to this version of events when he went public with his story of being ordered to bury the case, although Ivanov, who retired to Kazakhstan and has since died, continued to believe that UFOs and alien technology were behind the whole affair. In 2000, a regional television company made a documentary film about the incident and a local writer published a semi-fictional account of the events in a book called The Dietlov Pass. Since then, the Dietlov Foundation has been founded, led by Dietlov's old friend Yuri Kuncevich, to honour the dead students and attempt to get the case officially reopened. Last year, six members of the original search party and 31 independent experts gathered for a conference organised by Ural State Technical University, the Dietlov Foundation and several non-governmental organisations. They concluded that the military had been carrying out tests in the area and had inadvertently caused the deaths. But we still lack documents and ask the Defence Ministry, the Russian Space Agency and the FSB to provide us with them to obtain a full picture, the participants said in a statement. What really happened on the night of the 1st to the 2nd of February 1959 may never be known, but Dyatlov and his doomed companions are unlikely to be forgotten any time soon. The area where the group set up their last camp has now been officially named Dietlov's Pass. Well, that concludes episode 23 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and managed to put up with my weird and wonderful Russian. I don't think it was very accurate, but I did give it a go. And if you can hear the birds in the background, they're actually outside in my backyard as I'm recording at about quarter past two in the afternoon. The birds are rainbow lorikeets, which is spelt L-O-R-I-K-E-E-T. And if you look them up on the internet and get some pictures of them, you'll see that they're particularly beautiful birds and you'll understand why they're called rainbow lorikeets. 
Anyway, that's it for today. And if you'd like to provide some feedback for the podcast, remember it is greatly appreciated. You can do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley, which are probably the best two, or via email. And the email address is mysteries at origins.info. And remember, Origins is O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. Anyway, all feedback is greatly appreciated. And I will try to recognise your contribution during the podcast. So it's bye for now, until next time.